Twas the episode before Christmas, and all through the land, everyone wondered what tale was at hand. We hope you are safe in your home or abode and ready to hear this great episode. If you are caught up on all the weeks previous, it must be time for a new Dark and Devious. Welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of Dark and Devious. Um, before we get into anything, uh, I would just like to say, if you did not listen to the last episode's uh, disclaimer, uh, we did apologize for the audio issues, and we are hoping that moving forward, our audio issues from episode 44 are a thing that was one and done, and we will give you lovely quality from here on out. <laughs> right, yes, we did add that nice little uh, disclaimer, which I think sounded really good. Uh, for, Thanks, for that last I wrote episode. it myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, if you did not hear that, uh, that we did have some weird audio things happening last time, but I think we've got it figured out. We did a little bit of testing since then to make sure we were, we also tried a little something different last time that I guess didn't quite pan out the way we hoped, but, you know, live and learn. Yep. Um, Sometimes if things are not broken, there's no need to try to fix it. Right. <laughs> Which is what we attempted to do, and we learned our lesson. <laughs> so we got that out of the way. Uh, but on to way more exciting things. I cannot believe that it is the week of Christmas already. I feel like it should still be weeks away, but here it is. It's time. Yeah, this, uh, I really think, I mean, my life was a whirlwind for the past two and a half months. So everything, I was like, oh, Halloween happened. Oh, it's Thanksgiving. Oh, it's Hanukkah. Oh, it's Christmas. It's like, I don't even realize how quickly things are coming up. Right. I feel like you just moved down there like a week ago. It's been, I mean, I moved in October and yeah we've been in our house a whole entire month now and I love it well that's good I'm glad you're loving it down there uh what are you gonna do for your first Christmas season down there and New Year's I mean yes we've got um, lots of holidays crammed in here <laughs> uh yeah so we've been going to some meetups with uh some locals and like-minded people and uh, we did get invited to a Christmas Eve party that um, we hoped to attend. We haven't got the official invite. We were just told about it. We're waiting for the details. So okay. we might do that. If we don't do that, something that we have done um, every year since we've been together minus uh, last year's COVID Christmas was go to the movies and see a movie on Christmas. Um, oh, I like that. Cause there's oftentimes some really amazing movies 
that come out around the holidays. So. Right. Uh, so my husband didn't grow up celebrating Christmas. His, he's never celebrated. Um, and I'm, I enjoy the secular parts of Christmas, such as uh, Santa and, uh, and not, not Hallmark type Christmas movies, but more like, you won't be surprised, but my favorite Christmas movie is Gremlins. <laughs> so I like Gremlins and Nightmare Before Christmas and um, Edward Scissorhands, all Christmas adjacent films um, with a little bit of a dark side, I guess, but that's just... That, that seems to fit perfectly. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so we won't probably do much on the day of Christmas and New Year's uh, TBD, not a clue. Okay. How about yourself? Yeah. Um, this year for me, we usually go to my grandma's on Christmas Eve for dinner. I don't think we're going to do that this year. Just, um, I think she's going to be taken care of at my aunt's place. I want to say, I think that's where she's been staying lately just to, um, she had some, some issues right after Thanksgiving and had to go to the hospital for a little bit, but she is recovering amazingly and, um, yeah, I guess my aunt's just keeping an eye on her, which is is good. Um, she's still close by, but just um, maybe like more closer to like 45 minutes outside of where I am. Um, so I, I think it's just going to be a really chill Christmas Eve at home. Uh, I might even, a lot of times I know before these big family holidays, the like the the gay bars are the place to go because <laughs> a lot of times people really love to you know reconnect with people who are back in town like who've maybe moved away or something like that um and it's just it's just a festive time to meet up with people and uh, so maybe maybe i'll uh maybe we'll go out for drinks on christmas eve this year instead which i would totally be down for and then Christmas Day, I, we are, both my partner and I are going to my mom's house and we're just gonna, we're gonna sleep in real late that day. We've already determined this and we're gonna come over in the afternoon, do presents, dinner, all that stuff. So that I'm cool. really looking forward to that. The whole just lazing about all morning, <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the best things about Christmas, I think. Oh, and... man, you did not grow up in my house because <laughs> Christmas at my house was not a lazy day. My parents were up at 5 a.m. cooking. Um, and then us kids got up at 6. We all tore through our presents. And then all the family comes over and it was a big, big, big shindig. And yeah. I know my mom did that this past weekend actually on Saturday the 18th which I wasn't able to attend this year um but I know my siblings and all my nieces and nephews and the cousins all got together did That's the gift nice. exchange had a had a nice meal um so maybe next year I'll make it yeah I really I, when I was a kid I was like I am the first one up on Christmas morning like I just cannot wait to get up and now as an adult I'm just like I, we could do 6 p.m. even and I'd be fine. <laughs> yes, I agree. I love that mentality. Like holidays should be more relaxing, not more stressful. Yeah. 
And then I'm excited for New Year's. Uh, got invited to one of my coworkers is having some some people over. And when whenever we get together with fellow coworkers, we always have a great time. Uh, so that's going to be fun. And then I am continuing my for New Year's Day. My plan is to continue my tradition that I started this this year of doing a John Waters movie marathon. So nice. that will Keep be my tradition my new year's day tradition going forward that's i love that he was actually here in austin uh just after you saw him oh nice yeah Yeah. i wasn't able to go i i learned about it way last minute but yeah yeah i mean it's amazing he manages to get to lots of different corners of the country i remember he also said that he was going to poland uh after uh, after the halloween show that i saw him at so like man you know he's in his 70s now i think and not slowing down (laughs) which is great yeah it's good for him and it's great for all of us yes yes absolutely so yeah well now now you got me all in the holiday spirit here talking about all this fun fun stuff around Christmas and New Year's. But I have this sinking feeling that whatever we'll be discussing today uh, might might set a different mood. Is that is that going to be the case, Patrick? Well, we are going to stick with the holiday theme and we are going to be attending a holiday party. However, I don't think you want to be at this holiday party, Chris. Interesting. Okay, I've, I'm starting to get a little inkling here. I feel like maybe I should have like a glass of some some bubbly or something as I listen to this story. I'm, maybe I'll have to dig something out of the fridge. You know what, why don't you go grab yourself a holiday themed cocktail or maybe an eggnog and sit back and you probably won't relax as I tell you today's tale. All right, Patrick. So I have my beverage in hand, although this is a candy cane latte. So it's still seasonally appropriate, just not alcoholic. Um, I I think I am caffeinated and ready for this story. Okay, well, I am ready to tell you. So hold on to your latte and hope you make it through. So it was the night before Christmas, uh, 2008. The Ortega family, Joseph 80 and Alice 70 were hosting their annual Christmas party at their Covina, California home about a half hour east of Los Angeles. There were 25 people in attendance, including Joseph and Alice's five grown children, their spouses and their grandchildren. In the dining room, Joseph, who went by Papa Joe, his wife, Alice, and their adult children, Sylvia, James, Charles, Alicia, and Letitia, were playing a late night game of Texas Hold'em after a Christmas Eve dinner. I mean, grand- that is one of the most fun versions of poker, I think. I've never played, to be honest. Um, I don't know how to play poker. I, I'm a blackjack aficionado, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I can count to 21. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Their grandchildren were playing video games and hanging out near the backyard pool. And on the second floor was just the single Ortega's 17-year-old grandson, Michael, 
who was playing a newly gifted computer game. Suddenly, there was a knock on the front door, and the squeal from an eight-year-old girl happily crying rang through the house. It's Santa Claus. It's Santa Claus. She peeked out the window and saw that he was carrying a gift, a gift she hoped was just for her. Little did the family know, though, that this was no ordinary visit from Santa Claus. And what? Yeah. What? Oh my gosh. Already the setup. The, the name Ortega, I feel like I've heard this, I've heard the name before, but then when you're like 2008, I'm, I'm like, I don't know if I remember anything from that time period. Cause like, I was trying to think of, of a, like a Christmas time crime and there were some other ones that crossed my mind, but I don't think I'm familiar with this one. And mm. Santa could possibly be implicated. I'm I'm already shook. I mean, maybe maybe it's no ordinary visit because he's the real Santa with real magic. Oh my gosh, could you imagine? It's like, and you've all been naughty this year. <laughs> so yeah. well, that's where I'm going to leave you for now on the night of Christmas Eve 2008. Because before we get into the details of what took place on that night in within the Ortega home we need to take a deep dive into one particular individual, that being Bruce Pardo. Growing up in the San Fernando Valley in the 1970s, Bruce Pardo was the son of an engineer and showed a knack for mathematics. After graduating from John H. Francis Polytechnic High School in Sun Valley, he went to Cal State Northridge to study computer science, which he excelled at. He loved being the center of attention and clowning around and was relatively popular within his uh, like cohort. At his Cal State graduation as a final hurrah and stunt to wrap up his college years, he carried a life-size inflatable doll, like a sex doll, uh, <laughs> down the aisle to sit with him at his seat. Friends and coworkers recalled him as exceptionally bright. And shortly after graduating from Cal State, he landed a job as a software engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which I will refer to as JPL from here on out. Hopefully they didn't uh, require him to bring the, the doll, the life-size <laughs> doll uh, as part of his employment. <laughs> hey, like that was what got him the job. They're like, hey. right. Be like, I like, I like the cut of your jib. I like the <laughs> weird prank you pulled. I don't know. So at JPL, his career started exceptionally well, but it didn't take long before it took kind of a different direction. He wasn't really the most industrious worker. He actually used his brilliance in a more mischievous way at work and relished in chances to defeat the system. Once a colleague, a colleague recalled that he hacked into the JPL computer system to learn what his coworkers' salaries were. Oh. Which, I mean, money's a weird topic to talk about. So if you're just gonna like manipulate the system to find out where you're standing with others, I think it's a little shady. Yeah, well, I mean, that's also, it's, it's kind of not anybody else's business. Right. It's, it's one of those, it's like one of those topics that are, are kind of off limits in polite conversation. 
It's like, you don't talk about politics. You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about your salary. <laughs> right. Yeah. Those taboo topics. So while working at JPL, he also met a woman named Delia. In 1988, when he was 24, Pardo became engaged to Delia. They invited 250 guests to the nuptials at the San Fernando Mission. At the time, Pardo didn't have much money and he was still living with his mother at the time, which that's totally fine. Adult children living with parents is okay, especially when like you are financially struggling. Yeah, and, uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting that culturally in a lot of other places, you kind of live with your parents basically until you get married. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and oftentimes like all through your 20s, you're still living at your parents' home in mm-hmm. lots of cultures. So not really out of the ordinary. No, not at all. And 24 is not old. It's, yeah. it's fine. <laughs> um, so because of this, Delia was paying for the whole wedding herself. She had dipped into her savings for a country country club reception and for a honeymoon, which they planned to celebrate together in Tahiti. Dang, that sounds like a nice honeymoon. Mm-hmm. I've never been. I'd love to go. Mm-hmm. On the day of the wedding, though, June 17th, 1989, Delia, Pardo's brother Brad, and Pardo's mother Nancy Windsor waited for nearly an hour for Pardo to show up. He never did. The next oh. week, his fiance Delia learned that he had withdrawn the $3,000 left in their credit union account and booked a solo trip to Palm Springs and blew all the money that she had left in her account. Oh, what a jerk. Mm-hmm. He not only like mooched off her while they were courting and planning their wedding, but then to completely stand her up at the altar and take all the money that they had in their joint account that's so sleazy that's what like no like don't i would i would not join those accounts until you've got the ring on your finger right (laughs) like until you've sealed the deal like don't let money get mixed (laughs) right that can only cause problems and i mean to no surprise, with that being done, Delia cut ties with Pardo. And from what I could find out, she is now married to another person and appears to be living a normal life. So aside from having a tumultuous relationship with his now ex-fiance Delia, he was relatively popular with everyone else he surrounded himself with. And it's widely thought that most people did not know about this Delia ordeal at all, because I can't imagine if one of my friends <laughs> told me like, hey, I said my fiance up and robbed her, I cannot imagine that I would want to be friends with them still. Yeah, I, I would definitely not want to be friends with that person. So him being popular on weekends, Pardo would often invite friends onto his houseboat, which was on Lake Havasu in California, which also side note, if he is financially struggling, why does he have a houseboat? That's a great question. Unless that houseboat is your only residence. Which it wasn't. <laughs> which it wasn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. Also, I would be really pissed if if uh, the person I was going to marry was hiding that they had a houseboat from me. Like, right? come on, take me out on that lake. 
Right. I mean, why doesn't Delia get to go party on the boat, but all of his friends yeah. do? I don't get it. Poor Delia. He was quoted as being like a big, goofy kid, very lovable and fun to be around, said Tina Westman, who he dated in the early 1990s, shortly after the Delia affair. Sometimes too goofy, though. In one instance, Pardo coaxed Tina Westman to join him on a rafting trip with friends. When she fell overboard and nearly drowned, Pardo simply laughed it off. She says that he didn't give the severity of what happened and was later quoted saying that he was very, very intelligent, but lacking common sense. That I totally understand that type of person. I like, I feel like I've encountered that type of person before where they, they're just like, they, it's like they don't take anything too seriously for some reason where it's like, hey, you know, there are times where you can be goofy and silly and that's fine. But then there's also times where you have to be an adult and responsible. I can't believe, especially when it's like somebody could have died. Cause I like I've been whitewater rafting before and like it can get it can get pretty rough on the water there. So it, it if you somehow like fell overboard and then I mean you could hit your head on the rocks or something like that. Uh, it's a, it's a serious situation. And if he's just laughing that off, that's a major red flag to me. I know. I was like, and especially if you are romantically involved, I mean, any person, a stranger you should be concerned about. Yeah. But if you're romantically involved with someone and they go overboard in like raging rapids and you're like, huh, funny, like, <laughs> What's wrong with you? Yeah, I would, I hope that she immediately broke up with him after that. <laughs> I couldn't find like how the relationship ended. Um, but I imagine it seems like it was a very short lived relationship. Yeah. Which, okay, thank goodness for her that she got out of that relationship. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so like there's Delia, which he, he crashed and burned that relationship all on his own. It sounds like Tina probably, from my assumption, had like the sense about her to walk away and find someone else. But it was by 2001, at the age of 37, that Pardo seemed to have possibly put his partying, carefree, and laughable nature lifestyle to bed. He was 37 is pretty late to be figuring that out. Yeah. (laughs) There are late bloomers, but <laughs> I think maybe 20 been should have been the time to bloom. At this time, he was living in the Woodland Hills neighborhood of Los Angeles with his then-girlfriend, Elena Lucano, and their 13-month-old son, Bruce Matthew, which Bruce was the biological father to. And keep that in mind, that's important. A week after New Year's in 2001, their 13-month-old son, Matthew, fell into the backyard swimming pool while Pardo was watching television in the house. Oh, no. So Elena was out of the house, Bruce was left in charge, and little Bruce Matthew toppled into the pool. When Elena returned home, she found Pardo screaming and holding Matthew in his arms. They immediately rushed the boy to the hospital where he was able to be revived. Pardo remained at the boy's bedside 
and for weeks showed genuine signs of remorse and guilt for what had happened to the boy while under his watch. He was terribly upset that like his own son almost died at like his lack of care, his negligence. That is, that I was um, amazed that you said that the boy was revived because it seems like almost always in those situations where like a small child is unattended at a pool, you know, especially if the, the parent or whoever's watching them is in the house, that a lot of times like they just, they don't even realize that the kid is gone for so long until they've been like underwater for minutes and minutes and, and coming back from that is, seems to be almost impossible. So that's incredible that, that they were able to revive him that's yeah. amazing yeah like it is amazing it's a miracle but especially with with children because their lungs are so much smaller too right mm -hmm. I feel like if any water we get in there it would just amplify like ramp up the time yeah the, like the time would be the timeline would be even shorter to get any kind of meaningful help so he was revived but when the doctors determined that little Bruce Matthew would never fully recover and would be left in a paraplegic state, older Bruce Pardo abandoned both Elena and his son and never sought to support them financially or otherwise. Oh, what a jerk. Just when I thought he was going to be turning over a new leaf. I mean, just when everyone thought he was turning over a new leaf, like... His... Also, he is directly responsible for all of that. And it's like, yeah, you don't think that your your son would have loved to have not fallen into the pool and you instead don't... you were inside watching TV. Right. And you don't think that uh, your son would like to be able to walk, but you can just walk away. Like, it's it's absurd. That's somebody who has some major accountability and responsibility issues. Mm -hmm. So he just completely ghosted Elena and his son. However, he kept Matthew in his life in one way. And you want to know what that is? He kept him in his life to claim him as a dependent so he could write off Matthew as a tax deduction. Oh my gosh. I thought you were going to be like, he was going to use him for a kidney transplant or something. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I'm I, if that thought did not cross his mind, I would be surprised. So with Elena and his son, Bruce, in the dust, it was in 2004 when Pardo met Sylvia Orza, one of Joseph and Alice Ortega's adult children. So here enters the Ortega family and the chain of events that would lead up to the fateful night of December 24th 2008. Sylvia and Pardo were introduced by her brother-in-law, who was one of Pardo's co-workers at JPL. It's not clear which brother-in-law introduced them, but clearly he must thought that Pardo was an upstanding guy to make an introduction to his sister-in-law. Sylvia, at 40 years old, had three children from two previous marriages. Her first husband was tragically killed in a car accident and she separated from her second husband under pretty amicable situations. She had sole custody of her three children and was a very doting and loving mother. She would do anything for her kids. Pardo's friends and family thought Sylvia was just what he needed, a down-to-earth woman with a large, loving family. 
They were married in January 29th, 2006, and Pardo brought a three-bedroom home in Montrose, California for the new family. They also bought an Akita, which they named Saki, and everyone seemed to be living happily under the new home's roof. Also, that is the perfect name for an Akita. They are so fluffy and cute. Mm-hmm, they are so cute. Pardo took on the role of a father figure in no time. He was a regular usher for Sunday Mass at Holy Redeemer Catholic Church, which was just a few blocks away from their home, and the family regular attended all together in smiles and just like seemed very picturesque. He seemed to have a quote-unquote matured when Sylvia entered into his life. At first, Pardo was drawn to Sylvia's warm and welcoming family. But after the first year and a half of their marriage, she told friends that he had become cold, miserly, and distant. They often argued about money, which, does that sound familiar? Uh, him getting involved with money and not being happy about it? Like, yeah, it sounds like somebody where, like, it's never going to be enough. Right. Like, I don't get it. You have a house. You have a houseboat. You have a wife, three what sound like great stepchildren. Why, like, why do you have to complicate things? Arguments had gotten so bad that the neighbors reported hearing them from houses away, and Sylvia often left with her children to stay at either a friend or family member's home for the night. At the same time that their marriage was crumbling, Pardo's mother, Nancy, had grown quite fond of Sylvia and her children. It was in late 2007 that she confided to her daughter-in-law that Pardo had a severely disabled son who he claimed as a tax deduction, but did not support. So Pardo had never mentioned to Sylvia that A, he had his own child from a previous relationship, or B, that that child had become impaired while under his supervision and that he abandoned the child as a result of his negligence. That's, so, like, I can't, like, I, I still can't get over that sticking point. Right. So, I can't imagine if my husband, if my mother in law told me that, hey, he has this very dark history that he has never told you about after you're married, after you own a house together. Like, I just couldn't imagine that. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's one thing if you had been upfront about it and, yeah, and like, I don't know, remorseful for the the things that you'd done, but to keep that hidden. And then also to tell other people, but not your spouse. Like that's, like if there's one person that should understand you and love you and accept you for who you are, despite all of your mistakes, it should be your spouse. Right. <laughs> but I mean, if my now husband before <laughs> told me that he abandoned his child who because of him is now permanently disabled, I don't think he would be my husband. So, yeah, right? <laughs> so there's that. So obviously marriages should be built on trust and honesty. It's one thing to have financial disputes with a partner. That's unfortunately too common, but it's a whole nother ballpark when you not only lie about having another child, but Sylvie now knowing he completely abandoned the child was the final straw for her. The couple separated in March 7th of 2008. 
Sylvia asked Pardo if she could stay in the home while her daughter finished the last few months of kindergarten. But Pardo moved her belongings and the children's belongings onto the driveway while they were away at a niece's birthday party. She filed for divorce and moved in with her sister Leticia in Glendale. On June 18th, 2008, a Burbank judge ordered Pardo to pay $1,785 a month in spousal support. Pardo's first check bounced, and after that, he stopped payment. By this time, though, making financial payments to his ex-wife was definitely on his mind, and he was very stressed about handing over a tiny sliver of his abundant paycheck. So he began to meticulously devise a plan in how he could solve this problem of his. On June 13th, he drove to Burbank and walked into Gunworld, a small shop under a balloon awning, and paid $999 cash for a nine millimeter handgun. Red flags, red flags. Oh, the red flags will keep on coming, Chris. Yeah, gosh. And also like, oh, he's having trouble paying his his ex-wife, like what amounts yeah that uh what like what amounts to be like what about one percent of his income yeah basically and and then goes and drops nearly a thousand dollars on a gun it just keeps coming chris like (laughs) (sighs) on august 8th he was back at the same shop to buy another nine millimeter handgun California limits sales of concealable firearms to one customer per every 30 days. So a month later on September 8th, you guessed it, Pardo bought a third nine millimeter from the same store. He returned for a fourth on October 11th and a fifth on November 13th. Did this gun store have like a punch card system or something (laughs) like- A rewards program? Yeah, I mean, This seems very, I, you'd think that there'd be some sort of red flag be like, why is this? And were they all, they were all nine millimeter handguns, right? Correct. So it's like- It was the same exact gun. Okay, so that's another thing that would be super, uh, like a huge red flag for, for me as a gun seller. Yes. Because it's like, it's like, is, are they just buying the, these guns to give to other people? Or, I mean, like, I could understand if you come in under a business, like with a car, like maybe you own a shooting range. I mean, so you need a lot of handguns, right? Because people go there to target practice. But, but I think, yeah, I don't know. I would think that most people would bring their own. I don't know how it works. Yeah. <laughs> I shot guns like back in junior high, early high school and haven't touched them since. No, pretty much same for me. <laughs> I have no, I don't know how that whole world operates. <laughs> I, I like target practicing, but uh, I also like, I remember using, I think it was like a 22, which is like a, like a rifled style mm-hmm. gun. Uh, and you have to have it like really pressed up to your shoulder in the right way because it kicks yeah. uh, um, when you when you fire it. And man, that's just not worth the pain to me. <laughs> no, me either. I'm like, you didn't do that for fun. No, thank you. Uh, it was up at our lake place. We'd have like the clay pigeons, the mm-hmm. bright orange, and we'd set them up like in the woods. And 
try and hit him. Mm-hmm. But like we were on the farm, we just were shooting at bottles. Yeah. <laughs> so while all this gun purchasing was going on, lawyers for Pardo and Sylvia exchanged briefs. Pardo spent most of his time at home in Montrose. He ate lunch a few times a week at the Montrose Bakery and Cafe, ordering a turkey or pastrami sandwich and for dessert, a raspberry danish. He okay, usually now you're o- making me hungry, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> he usually occupied a booth near the window, keeping an eye on their once shared dog, Saki, on the sidewalk. He was a regular there, and all the employees, as well as other regulars, said he was just always so pleasant to be around and had some of the best conversations. On September 8th, he called a Jerry's costume shop and placed an order for a Santa Claus suit. He ordered a Santa Claus outfit saying that it was for a children's party. He dropped off a $200 deposit and promised to return in November for the final payment and to pick it up. During August and September, uh, Pardo applied for other jobs in the high-tech industry, but few companies were hiring. Because of Pardo's financial difficulties in the past, um, the judge hearing the case agreed to suspend the payment to Sylvia. So like literally there's no problem here anymore. Like he doesn't have to pay Sylvia because he's somehow currently unemployed. So what's there to be angry about? I don't know. Yeah. During the same time, an old friend from high school, Steve Irwin, reached out for a friendly reconnection with Pardo. Wait, really? Steve Irwin? Mm-hmm. It's E-R-W-I-N. Oh, not like I-R-W. No. <laughs> so maybe, it's, maybe it's Irwin, Irwin, not sure. It's probably pronounced Irwin, but it's just funny to think of, um, what is the, the wildlife guy, Steve Irwin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Irwin, his wife and six children, then lived in Iowa. And although he and Pardo had been in touch for ser- several years, Erwin invited Pardo uh, to his home in October to help celebrate his 45th birthday. When Pardo arrived, he told Erwin about the divorce and said he had been just sitting at home thinking about everything. Pardo apparently seemed embarrassed at his personal life, including his uh, newly lack of employment and finances, were on display in public court. Pardo told Irwin that he and his mother were barely speaking and that she was sitting with Sylvia's family during the divorce hearings. However, despite being down about the divorce and his finances, Pardo seemed to enjoy the visit. He played happily with Irwin's children, helped them with their algebra homework, and gave them small sums of money as gifts. However, while also in Iowa, Pardo stopped by a different gun shop and bought 16 handgun magazines, each of which holds 18 bullets, eight more than allowed in the magazines sold in California. But that, it, when you said uh, gun magazines, this just shows you how long I've worked at a bookstore because the first thing I thought of was like literal paper magazines about guns. <laughs> no, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Um, firearms magazines are the rounds that go into the gun that hold uh, the number of bullets. So he returned to California and went to pick up his Santa outfit from the costume shop. 
Now, Pardo came in at six feet four and weighed 275 pounds and requested that his um, Santa Claus outfit had been made with extra room in the pant legs. It's a slightly odd request, but since he was a bigger guy, the shop owner thought nothing of it. Hmm. When picking up the suit, he paid the $100 that remained on his bill and tipped the owner an additional 20. A week before Christmas, in a hearing room on the second floor of the Burbank Courthouse, the marriage of Bruce Pardo and Sylvia Orza was officially terminated under the cause of irreconcilable differences. Pardo agreed to pay his ex-wife $10,000, and she was able to keep the diamond engagement ring and also the dog, Saki. The next day, the Friday before Christmas, Pardo walked into a Montrose travel agency to price a plane ticket to visit Irwin's family again. He returned to the agency on Monday and paid $650 for a round-trip ticket to Moline, Illinois, the closest airport to Irwin's home. Ah, uh, beautiful scenic Moline. Oh, it's who, lovely. Uh, I I actually I remember as a as a kid we did take a vacation down to Moline, Illinois once because that's where the John Deere factory is. And Ooh, exciting uh, trip. Yeah, this. yeah, and my because uh, my my brother has been obsessed with John Deere tractors since he was little so it was it was kind of fun we i love the the john deere house that was fun i've never been so maybe next time i return to see the family i'll have to check it out yes he would depart on 12 20 a.m on christmas day and return two weeks later he called erwin to say that he was planning to visit and all involved on the christmas visit were very excited at 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve, 2008, Pardo called Irwin again. Irwin stated that Pardo sounded down, but he said he'd see them the next day. He mentioned that he was just feeling a little blue spending Christmas Eve all alone. After all, he didn't even have his dog Saki anymore. Everything seemed fine, albeit a bit sad. Okay, so I'm really concerned already for the dog the most. Oh, the dog? Well, I, well, just hang tight. I guess, I, I mean, <laughs> like, I know something horrible is going to happen to all the people, which is inevitable, I would think. Okay, well. I, but I think it'd be, it would be even, I don't know if I could handle it if something can, if something happens to the dog, so. Well, to calm your nerves, um, Saki is okay. Okay, good. All right. I know, I mean, I know, like I said, I know something horrible is going to happen. But if the if something happened to the people and the dog, I don't know if I would be able to continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know why. Whenever I hear about an animal being hurt, I'm just like, no, (laughs) just like rips my heart out. I agree. I feel like I'm the same way. I mean, Maybe we're just numb to human on human violence, but it's like when a dog can't even fight back or, you know, an animal. Yeah. Okay. All right. I might need to add some uh, Baileys to this coffee. Yes. Make sure you're, you're ready for work though later. (laughs) So here we are, Christmas Eve, 2008. Sylvia, her children, 
and the rest of her immediate family all gathered at the home of her parents. They did this every single year. Joseph and Alice Ortega had been married for 53 years. They moved to California from Mexico and started an industrial painting company together called Industrial Powder Coating Inc. Now Joseph spotted Alice in their hometown in Mexico when he was 23 years old and she was just 17. It is noted that on their very first meeting before even speaking, Joseph said he saw Alice and told his sister, I'm going to marry that girl someday. Oh, that's cute. I love that love story. No. A neighbor of the Ortegas described the family as truly loving and full of life. The kind of folks that would give you the clothes off their own backs. When you walked into a room, every one of the Ortega children who are now adults would get up and give you a warm hug. They were just the most respectful family. So as stated at the top of the story, this Christmas Eve of 2008, there were about 25 people attending their annual party. While the adults were either playing Texas Hold'em or starting to clean up, the children were all in the rear of the house in the backyard, aside from that 17-year-old Michael who was upstairs. Suddenly, around 11 p.m., there was a knock at the door. And although late, the family wasn't too surprised due to their annual holiday party being such a well-loved tradition on the block. That's when eight-year-old Katrina, Leticia Ortega's daughter and Sylvia's niece, peeked out the window and squealed, it's Santa, it's Santa. And Santa was carrying a giant, nicely wrapped present. She ran to the door like any child would and flung it open, beaming with glee. Now the whole family didn't really see this as being too odd since it was their annual party. And it was assumed that it was just a loving neighbor wanting to join in the celebration. And in what a charming way, right? Yeah, that sounds like something that, I mean, if it's a tight knit community, like it sounds like it is the neighborhood that like, oh, like what a, what a great way to surprise the kids. Like, uh-huh. like bring over some, some special gift and, but like dressed as Santa Claus. Like, won't that be yeah. fun? Yeah, it's like this is, and also like because the Ortega family is like such a, such a loving and like genuine open family, mm-hmm. it would be something really fun to do for them since it seems like they give so much to the community. However, no sooner though had Katrina opened the door and saw Santa Claus standing there Santa pulled a handgun out from his pocket and shot her in the face. An eight-year-old on Christmas Eve shot in the face by Santa. That is like the most horrifying thing. And and I think uh, if this, like not knowing whether this child survives or not at this point in the story, if she does survive, how terrifying Christmas would be forever. Mm-hmm. And like... Also, he is after Sylvia. And if for some reason you're going to go after other members of the family, maybe like the brothers or sisters had said things in court, maybe the parents, his own mom was taking Sylvia's side. Those are adults. But if you're going to start out your revenge over money, by shooting an eight-year-old who was at one time your niece in the face. Like, 
what is wrong with you? It's it's the most insane thing you could do. And also to basically prey on her her innocence, basically. Like you are like you are purposefully disguising yourself as Santa Claus. Like what child wouldn't fling the door open for Santa Claus, right? right. Yeah, it's disgusting. <sighs> now hearing the commotion and the gunshot the home just erupted into panic and chaos. Family members were diving under tables, under chairs, just scrambling everywhere. They were grabbing each other, trying to save each other, do whatever they could. Now, since most of the adults were in the front of the home getting ready to leave, that put them in direct line to be the first targets. And as mentioned, and fortunately, most of the children were in the back plane which allowed for the majority of them to escape with ease. Amidst all the chaos, Charles Ortega, Sylvia's brother, actually recognized who Santa was behind his beard and yelled out, it's Bruce, it's Bruce. And as soon as those words came out of his mouth, he was immediately shot and killed. It was then that the rest of the family and friends and attendants realized that Bruce Pardo someone who was basically still family, was massacring his ex-wife's entire family along with her. Family members who survived the attack say they saw James Ortega, Sylvia's other brother, attempt to take down Bruce even after he had been shot himself. They said that James got up pouring blood and tried to save their family. Unfortunately, James was overtaken but he apparently fought until the very end. Papa Joe, his wife, Alice, and two of their daughters, Sylvia and Alicia, hid under the dining room table, and each one of them were shot execution style. The only survivor of the immediate Ortega family was Sylvia's sister, Leticia, and that's Katrina's mother. It was amongst the chaos that Leticia noticed that her daughter, Katrina, was stumbling out the front door and she ran after her. At this point, everyone in the house had either succumbed to gunshot wounds or had miraculously escaped the party, which had become a war zone. But Pardo was not done. Remember that large gift in his hand that little Katrina was so excited about? Well, he unwrapped his gift and inside was a homemade flamethrower. Remember he what the was, hell? Right. Oh my gosh. Like what it like, how do you even remember he was incredibly intelligent? He went to school for computer science. He um, followed his father's footsteps of being an engineer. He it probably wasn't something that was particularly difficult to make. Not for, for somebody who is an engineer. Right. Like, to me, I just think of, like, I'll get a bottle of hairspray and a lighter, but I'm sure his was much more advanced. Yeah. He immediately started engulfing the entire home in flames. Now, Michael Ortega, the 17-year-old who was upstairs on the computer, he had not escaped the house. Oh, no. It is likely that he was hiding upstairs in either a closet or under a bed. And he's the only member 
that uh, perished that day that did not die from gunshot wounds, but he was engulfed in flames. Oh, that's I, I can't imagine. I mean, I they you know usually if if someone were to die in a house fire, I think usually you succumb to the smoke first. Mm -hmm. And I I mean that's got to be so so absolutely terrifying. I know, especially when it's like there's flames, there's smoke everywhere. Um, I mean, it's a small comfort knowing that he didn't have to face being shot to death, but it's just, it's such a sad thing to think of. Like, this is a death that could have been prevented. And I just wish that he had been able to, you know, get out a window or something, but it's like, you don't, it's like, which is worse, which danger do I face the potential of like being shot or like burning alive? Like you can't win either way. I know, like, hopefully he did inhale smoke but i mean the way that this fire burns and you'll hear i i don't think it was that simple Oof. so leticia sylvia's sister who ran out after her daughter katrina called 911 at eleven twenty-seven. so remember this all started at about 11 a 11 p.m so in within 27 minutes he had shot and murdered, we don't know how many people yet, and had engulfed the home in flames. Leticia told this dispatcher that the shooter's name was Bruce Pardo. She said she could still hear him shooting. And towards the end of the call, she was quoted as saying, please, I don't know who else is still alive. She knew people had to have been seriously hurt, if not fatally wounded, but little did she know that she would lose nine family members that Christmas Eve night. Oh. When firefighters arrived on scene, it took a team of 18 firefighters two hours to put out the raging inferno. The I can't imagine also arriving on that scene and not knowing, be like, is the shooter still around? Like, is the shooter like, gonna like shoot the people trying to put the fire out? Like this person is absolutely unhinged and they don't know what this guy is capable of. Mm -hmm. The fire had burnt so hot and so quickly that medical examiners would have to rely on dental records to determine who had perished. Victims of the massacre were later to be determined to be Pardo's ex-wife, Sylvia, 43, her parents, Joseph, 80, and his wife, Alice, 70, Sylvia's two brothers, James, 52, and Charles, 50, their wives, Teresa, 51, and Sherry, 45, Sylvia's sister, Alicia, 46, and Alicia's son, Michael, 17. A 16-year-old girl was shot in the back, but survived, and a 20-year-old young woman survived, but suffered broken ankles after jumping out a second-story window. Oof. And then, of course, there's eight-year-old Katrina, now, Katrina survived, but was badly injured. Medical professionals said that she might have actually saved herself because she turned her head at the very last second and the bullet went straight through her lower jaw, which wow. that has to hurt. Like, thank 
God, it's a miracle that she survived, but I could not imagine that pain. Yeah. Well, and physical and emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and on top and now the trauma of losing so many family members all at once in this horrifying way. Like, I don't know how you could ever celebrate Christmas ever again after a situation like that. Right. But man, you've got to give her credit for that that quick split second reaction mm-hmm. saved her life. And mm-hmm. that is a small miracle there. So that accounts for the unfortunate victims of the Ortega family. But what happened to Bruce Pardo? He wasn't found within the rubble or the fire. So where did he go? It didn't take long for police to find him. Oh, only, thank goodness. Only three hours later, about 40 miles away, in a small town of Silmar, Brad Pardo, Bruce Pardo's brother, called the police. He had just returned from a Christmas party of his own to find his brother, Bruce, lying in a pool of blood on his couch. Bruce had died of one self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Lying next to him was a nine millimeter semi-automatic handgun and in his lap was another just like it, which would later prove to be the weapon that fired the fatal shot. What a coward, my God. I just, I really wanted them to catch him and put him away for the rest of eternity. And he would have to be like haunted by his victims like the rest of his days. Mm-hmm. Well, it's noted that when his body was found, he still had his wedding ring on. Hmm. So he clearly was not letting go of Sylvia. So Bruce had extensive third degree burns on his hands and arms and parts of the Santa suit had melted into his skin. Wrapped around his legs and held in with a girdle was $17,000 in cash. He also had copious amounts of cocaine in his system. That is a real weird recipe. Like, mm-hmm. like why? Okay, if you were planning on killing yourself, why would you have all that cash? And two, like, what's with the cocaine in your system? Like, I don't know. It just, there's a lot of unanswered questions there for me. Uh, well, I like that you're asking questions, Chris. Because okay. we're going to try to answer those. All right. Parked outside of his brother Brad's house was a blue Dodge Caliber, which records show had been rented to Bruce. Inside it, police could see the burnt remains of a Santa suit and thousands of rounds of ammunition. They could also tell that the car had been booby-trapped. Using a robotic device, police were able to safely detonate the bomb that had been rigged inside the vehicle. Oh, so he wasn't done yet causing chaos. No. Around the same time, Pasadena police received a call from attorney Scott Nord. He wanted to report a suspicious vehicle parked at the end of his driveway. Nord, coincidentally, had been Sylvia's divorce attorney, if you remember correctly. Yeah. The vehicle, a silver Toyota RAV4, had also been rented by Bruce. This vehicle, thankfully, wasn't booby-trapped. Instead, it contained supplies that indicated Bruce had been planning a rather long road trip. Maps of the U.S. and Mexico, food, 
water, and computers. After he killed the Ortegas, his plan seemed to have been to drive the booby trap Dodge to Nord's home, where he had previously parked the RAV4 and used that as his getaway car. Evidence would later show he also intended to kill his own mother, who he believed had taken Sylvia's side in the divorce. But the explosion at the Ortega's home had burned him so badly, he couldn't follow through with the rest of the plan. His burns would have required serious medical attention and would have been life-threatening if left untreated. Obviously, if a man in a burnt Santa suit were to enter a hospital that night, a connection would have been made and he would have been caught. Assuming I, ho- that- I hope that those burns hurt worse than anything he's ever experienced in his whole life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we can't get justice and like putting him away, I hope he at least suffered so badly. And that's why he put an end to himself because he couldn't deal with the pain anymore. Because like, what a trash human being. And the fact that he had such a meticulous plan, like multiple cars rented out, like, and also trying to like, take out the divorce attorney like this is somebody who was just so bitter and and just feels so entitled Mm -hmm. that uh that you know he just wanted to take out everyone who had worked against him in his mind or like even like totally innocent people and he didn't care who who he had to kill and that and if he had been captured, it would have been really easy to prove that this was all premeditated and that it would have been multiple counts of first degree murder. I know. I I wish he would have been captured. Um, but clearly he realized that by he could not leave those wounds untreated. Mm-hmm. And that if he would have gone to the hospital, he would have been. And I think it's safe to assume that he came to that conclusion and that's why he took his own life. Which is just kind of like the ultimate act of narcissism, I feel like. And a coward. Yeah. Ugh. So cowardly. Now, Pardo's mother, Nancy, said that she spoke with the remaining members of the Ortega family since the massacre. And they all assured her that they loved her. They considered her family and knew that none of this was her fault. Oh, that's... Again, the Atrega family, just so full of love. Yeah. And that's that's really sweet because it I, I feel like it would have been it would the easy thing to do would be like you're associated with this bad person, like we don't want anything to do with you, but it's like everybody lost somebody. And you know, it it's not like it's not a parent's fault ne- like necessarily. Mm-hmm. what their child does. Right. In the end, nine family members were brutally murdered and 13 children lost not one, but both parents on that horrible Christmas Eve night. Many of those children reported having PTSD, being scared of and or hating Christmas well into adulthood. However, Katrina, uh, the eight-year-old who grew shot in the face, went on to become a gun control activist. In 2018, 
She helped organize a school walkout in solidarity with the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas students of Parkland, Florida after their deadly shooting school massacre of that year. Her mother, Leticia, who also escaped the massacre with her daughter, has worked to make life as normal as possible for the family. She constantly reminds the remaining children who are now young adults, not to give power to their family's killer, to continue celebrating Christmas, to associate Santa with good things and to honor their loved ones by living life with purpose. And that is the saddening and terrifying tale of the Covina Christmas Eve massacre, a heartbreaking attack on an entire family by a very disgruntled family member of their own. Wow, I, I like the message at the end there that, yeah, don't, don't let this, this awful person continue to have a hold on you from beyond the grave. Right. And, and to kind of take back the holiday and for what it's meant to be. It's meant to be uh, a time where like, goodwill towards all and for sharing and loving and caring for one another and uh, I hope that that's what they've chosen to do is to and like use that time to remember their loved ones and then continue to uh, be that loving family and to put that goodness out in the world. And I think sometimes in the face of a tragedy like this is when we have the opportunity to do the most good. To, mm -hmm. to be like, okay, something horrible was done to us and our family. Well, we're going to take that negative energy and put out like 10,000 times more good energy. Right. Take your, take the trauma and use it for good. Yeah. Right? It's, it's very hard to do. Um, I can't imagine what it's like to go through something like that and come out holding your head high. But Leticia kept that family together. After all, she was now the the matriarch of that family, her parents, all of her siblings, their spouses just all taken out. She had to be there for all those kids. Right. I know you yeah. never expect to be thrust into a situation like that, but uh, it sounds like she has risen to the occasion. And I'm, I'm really glad to see that she's doing some, some real good, you know, leaving the family now. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, there's that, your, this uh, is a, not oh, so happy Christmas tale for the the holiday season and but we'll take that as a an opportunity to take stock of your own family and to remember how much you love and care about them and uh to not take not take them for granted right and so that that can be our, our positive take from this this really sad tale right well to tell you this tale i found the article Bruce Pardo, the Santa Claus Shooter from medium.com. Um, an article from the LA Times, a solitary man with murder in his heart, good old murderpedia, and the Orange County Register article, survivor of Covina Christmas massacre to join protesting students in Pasadena. And well, this holiday season, um, we at Dark and Devious hope everyone has been enjoying whatever holiday you celebrate. Um, if you're celebrating Christmas this week, we hope you have a very happy, lovely time with 
whoever you celebrate with. And we hope you just keep your loved ones close and happy holidays to all. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. So stay and safe and warm and until next uh, time. Bye. bye.